0: Alright, so I thought we might um, just get started a bit uh, with a little game to just uh, distract you from your food or your dessert, whatever you're having. So it's uh, what's wrong with the picture. So I'm just going to show you a picture and I want you to identify what's wrong with it, if you can. So what's wrong with that? The smile, what's wrong with the smile? Sorry? (laughs) Looks like a joker, alright. So, very well caught. That is... (laughs) Yeah, so that was the problem with the first one. Alright, let's try another one. What's wrong with that? No, that is the right hand. No spikes on the head. Very well done Jeff. Excellent. Cool. Alright. What's this one? Sorry? Wonderful. Very good. Excellent. Okay. It's uh, Olympics time. So can anyone tell me what the problem with that is? Wow, you guys are sharp, man. Gosh, well done. All right, and lastly, we need something Aussie. No emu. Excellent. That's right. We got an emu. Wow. Excellent. Well done. All right, so I guess that brings... Me to uh, our topic for today, which is false gospels exposed, and uh, the point that I wanted to make through that little illustration or object lesson, whatever you call it, is um, is that you've got to know what is true in order to be able to identify what is false. Uh, You've got to know exactly what the original and the authentic thing is before you can start to identify any distortion um, in that. But also, I think, in order to really know something and identify it, you need to know what it is, but you also need to know what it is not. So the Statue of Liberty is not a statue without those spikes, or the Olympic circles is not have the color purple. So it's as much as about knowing what it is, uh, as it is about um, knowing what it is not, I think i've lost my oops i've lost my connection. Let me just try this sorry. there might be something wrong with our net, I think. And it's working now. <laughs> no, it's alright. It's all good. Thanks. should be fine. Anyway, so uh, why, why this, this, this topic of false gospels is exposed? Uh, why do we want to study it? Why do we want to know what the real gospel is? And I just want to provide you with a couple of... There's lots of reasons why we should know what the true gospel is. If it's too small for you, I'll just read it out. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes... First to the Jew and then to the Gentile. So we want to be talking about this subject because it is the power of God. It brings salvation and therefore no salvation, no gospel, no salvation. So we really want to be understanding what uh, the gospel is. So that's why it's important. Another reason why uh, it's important is uh, what Paul writes to the Galatians when he just opens up his letter I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. So clearly, uh, the gospel is important because it is the power of God unto salvation, so we need to know about it. But very importantly also is any distortion is to be avoided because anyone who pro- propagates a distortion is accursed, really. And so we really want to be understanding uh, what the gospel is, what it involves, um, because we don't want to be talking about a different gospel or a distortion gospel or a gospel that is contrary to the one that the apostle actually taught. So how are we going to do this evening? just want to give you a brief overview of how we want to be studying uh, this this topic. We first look at what the gospel is. So just trying to understand what the the elements of the gospel are, trying to understand what constitutes the true gospel. Then we look at some distortions. So if we take away, like in the pictures we saw, if you add or you subtract something in the picture, it turns into something else. And so we want to be seeing certain additions or subtractions or distortions, which would create a false gospel. And then we want to see some examples of how this really looks in real life today. So we're looking at how those distortions start to play out in the world around us. So first of all, what is the gospel? So this is from 1 Corinthians 15, 1-5. to, 1 to 5. Before I proceed further, I have to have a full disclosure over here that all this content that I've put together has been taken largely from two uh, blog articles from Desiring God, which is John Piper's website. One of them is John, uh, an article by John Piper, and um, the other one is, um, I can't remember his name, Tony something... Um, Oh, this is gone again. Sorry. Technology is a beautiful thing till it doesn't work. I don't know if that's going to help me. So, now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received... That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. So looking at this verse um, alone, what can we say um, is the gospel? Looking at those phrases according to the scriptures, it appears twice in there, we can say, that the gospel is planned by God beforehand. That's one aspect, one component of the gospel, that it is a planned event, or plan. It is planned. Number two, Christ died for our sins, He was buried, He was raised on the third day, and he appeared to Cephas. So we can say that the gospel pertains to a real, objective, physical, historical event. It is historic. It's not a metaphor, it's not an allegory, it is historic. Number three, Christ died for our sins. And from that we can determine that the gospel is an objective accomplishment that provides full atonement for all who believe. It is something that was done. Christ died for our sins. Something happened, something was achieved as a result of that death. What else? By which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. We can say, therefore, that the gospel is a free offer that is received by faith alone in the work of Christ. It says, by which also you are saved. It has something to do with salvation. If you hold fast, if you hold fast, which means the person has to do something themselves, uh, um, unless you believed in vain. So it, it is a free offer received by faith alone uh, in the work of Christ. By which also you are saved. That's the fifth aspect in there. So the gospel is an instrument of salvation based on faith in what Christ has achieved. And I'll, I'll unpack each one of these as we go, just pointing out what the different components of the gospel are. And the last one, which is not taken from this Uh, passage of of scripture, but something that we can take um, in general, is all of that results in an infinitely happy future destiny. The purpose of all those things is to create for us a very um, happy future. So just looking at what those elements are, the gospel is planned by God beforehand. It is an objective, physical, historic event It is an objective accomplishment that provides full atonement for everyone who believes. It is a free offer to be received by faith alone in the work of Christ. It is an instrument of salvation based on faith in what Christ has achieved. And lastly, all of that together produces an infinitely happy future for everyone who believes in this gospel. Those are the elements that constitute the gospel. And now we're going to see what happens if we start distorting. Each of these event, um, elements. So, the first one, planned from eternity past. I just got a few verses over here. Acts 4, 27, 28, I'll just read that out. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Matthew 26, 55 and 56. At that time Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. And then, but all this had taken place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. So, very clearly, the, the, the gospel is something that has been planned in advance, well in advance. So, why is that good news? Well, for a lot of reasons. God is not reactive. He is proactive. He does not react. He does not have a plan B. He plans things well in advance. He is not taken by surprise. As far as our salvation is concerned, Satan has not thwarted God's plan of salvation, um, you know, all those things, Satan cannot frustrate the plans of God. Calvary was not just anticipated by God, it was actually ordained by him. So it's all part of God's plan. Now, why is this so important? Uh, You'd think that, yeah, sure, that's what the Bible says, and so that's what we should believe. Now, let's look at a few distortions as to how this element is distorted by Something called open theism. Now, I'll just read to you what open theism is. It is a sub-Christian theological construct. If it's going to be a bit heavy, I just want you to understand what's going on over here. So I'm giving you the definition. It's a a sub-Christian theological construct which claims that God's highest goal is to enter into a reciprocal relationship with man. Very good. That's fine. In this scheme, the Bible is interpreted without any anthropomorphisms, that is, all references to God's feelings, surprise and lack of knowledge are literal, and the result of his choice to create a world where he can be affected by man's choices. God's exhaustive knowledge does not include future free will choices by mankind because they have not yet occurred. So God doesn't really know what's going to happen because it hasn't happened. And because God's, the, the, the idea over here is, because man has free will, God does not know what choices man is going to make. And therefore God's sort of winging it along with man. Let me give you a few examples. The God of the Bible displays an openness to the future, that is an ignorance of the future, that the traditional view of omniscience simply cannot accommodate. That's by a guy called Clark Pinnock in his book, Augustine to Arminius. Someone else? David Basinger, in The Openness of God, Since God does not necessarily know exactly what will happen in the future, it is always possible that even that which God, in his unparalleled wisdom, believes to be the best course of action, at any given time, may not produce the anticipated results in the long run. So God might want to do something but it may not turn out the way he wants it to turn out. Which is not what we read just now. But anyway. John Sanders, he has a very provocatively titled book called The God Who Risks. And he says, it is God's desire that we enter into a give and take relationship of love. And this is not accomplished by God's forcing his blueprint on us. Rather, God wants to go, wants us to go through life together with Him, making decisions together. We're friends, we're working it out as we go. Together we decide the actual course of my life, right? Together. God does not together. We make it happen together. God's will for my life does not reside in a list of specific activities, but in a personal relationship. As lover and friend, God works with us wherever we go and whatever we do, to a large extent our future is open. And that's why you have the idea of the open theism or the openness of God. Our future is open and we are to determine what it will be in dialogue with God. So let's sit down, let's have a chat, let's see where we want to go. And God says, sure, if you want to do that, sure, let's work things out and see how we can move on. Now a lot of this comes from a place of not wanting to portray God as someone who um, is who allows suffering. Because the problem of suffering is so great, people don't understand how to deal with it. Why would a good God allow suffering to happen if he is powerful enough? Why can't he stop it? If He's, if he can't stop it, then maybe he's not powerful enough. And so the, this is a problem that a lot of academics and scholars are trying to grapple with. And so the, the problem of suffering says, oh, maybe God doesn't know exactly what's going to happen. So it's, it's open. It's kind of open. And proof of this is another open theist, his name is Greg Boyd, and this is from his Twitter feed, so God's Not Dead Part 2, the movie says, my life may not be going the way I planned it, but it is going exactly the way God planned it, that's what you and I would say. And Greg Boyd says, yeah, tell that to those who lost loved ones in yesterday's massacre. So obviously these these people have a problem with the problem of suffering, they're not able to get their heads around God's sovereignty, even over suffering. And so this is the way they sort of accommodate um, that God is not cruel. Uh, he allows suffering because he doesn't really know what's going to happen. That's their way of accommodating the problem. So that's number one, uh, the element and the distortion. Now we look at what the second one, we say that uh, the gospel is an objective historical event. Now, just a couple of verses. Um Like you, you all know the, the, the passage from 1 Corinthians 15. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God. Because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise. If in fact the dead are not raised. So obviously Paul is using a negative argument over here. But he's very clearly saying that this happened. And if it didn't happen, then we are found to be liars because we said something happened when it didn't actually happen. Luke 24:26. while they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. So very clearly, Scripture tells us that this was a real historic event, much like we are sitting here. Suppose someone comes through the door and says, Peace be with you. That's how Jesus came through the do- walls into the room where the disciples were and he announced that he was alive. After his crucifixion. So it's very. Now who in their right mind. Would have a problem with that. A lot. Anyway before that. Wh- why is this good news? Because it is real. It is true. That's why it's good news. It happened. God came down. in. He took on human flesh. Died for our sins. So it happened. It is historic. It is uh, it's good news. Because it, it can be trusted. We can live in great hope. We do not need to live in fear. So those are great those are the, the things that hinge on the gospel being real. Now, what are some distortions that can take place? It, distortion by mythologizing the resurrection. I'll read this quote from you by a retired uh, bishop of the Episcopalian Church. His name is John Shelby Spong. If you hear about him, run. Run. The probable fate of the crucified Jesus was to be thrown with other victims into a common unmarked grave. The general consensus of New Testament scholars is that whatever the Easter experience was, it first dawned in the minds of the disciples who had fled to Galilee for safety, driving us to the conclusion that the burial story in the Gospels is legendary. You can, hear, you can hear his own words now uh, in this next clip.
1: There is a powerful Easter experience that starts the whole Christian faith, transforms the disciples, changes them from cowards who had forsaken him and fled, and brought them back into being heroic followers of this Jesus. Changed the way they understood God. So that whatever that Easter experience was, they could never again think of God without seeing Jesus as part of that definition. They could never again see Jesus without feeling that God was part of that definition. Something incredibly powerful happened,
0: but it had nothing to do with the resuscitation of the body. I'm not making this up. (laughs) Something incredibly powerful happened, but it had nothing to do with the resuscitation of the body. It's something that dawned in the minds of the disciples, it was psychological, something like that. But but clearly, there is an attack on a very foundational element of the gospel that seeks to mythologize the resurrection uh, of Christ. Okay, number three, the gospel is an objective accomplishment that provides full atonement for all who believe. For example first peter 224 he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree why that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed something has been achieved it's objectively done second corinthians 521 for our sake he made him to be no sin who knew no sin first corinthians 619 to 20 you are not your own for you were bought with a price so glorify God in your body. So all of these things, the good, the good news about Christ's atoning sacrifice is that Jesus bore our sins. Um, he paid the price for our redemption. He endured God's wrath and condemnation in our place, which we call propitiation. And Jesus completed a life of perfect obedience. All these things put together ensure that his atonement for us was sufficient. We do not need anything else. But people are not happy with that because, um, and we'll see how they start to distort this objective accomplishment. So first of all, it's distorted by denying the atonement. Let's read a quote from our friends in New Zealand. Jesus did not die for sins. He died because he peeved a bunch of powerful people off. He lived and preached a message of radical inclusion. That threatened the status quo and the authorities killed him for it. The dying for sins business was a spin the church applied at a later date. Now you must understand that these are not atheists who are speaking. These are not people from a different religion. These are ordained ministers from, from churches, from Anglican churches, from various denominations. But this is Glyn Cardi who is right now the vicar at St. Matthew in the city in Auckland. Look at John Shelby Spong once again. (laughs) Jesus
1: did not die for your sins. What a strange and terrible idea that is. It makes God an ogre who would demand the death of the son. That makes God the ultimate child abuser. It turns Jesus into being a masochistic sufferer. It turns you and me into being guilt-laden people. Because we become responsible for the death of Jesus. And besides that, it's not so. That mantra that we hear repeated every Sunday is not so. You and I were not born in sin. We were born incomplete. We do not need to be rescued from sin. We need to be empowered to become all that we are.
0: So... I'm not showing you these videos to wind you up. I want you to understand the, the distortion that is out there, which you will have to face at some point. Because someone is going to tell you, hey, I saw this on YouTube. or oh, my preacher doesn't preach that. or oh, I don't believe that. And I, I'm a Christian. I'm evangelical. And so we need to understand what the gospel is so that we can speak to people who are misinformed, who are misled, and we can defend truly what the truth of God is. Because as we saw, it is the power of God unto salvation. And if people do not hear what the true power is, they are still going to be in their sins. Um, So that was a while ago. Now we move to Scotland and we see what... uh, Uh, Reverend Scott McKenna from the Church of Scotland has to say.
2: Just over two weeks ago, I was a guest of the University of Edinburgh Humanist Society, part of a panel of four. The Society was celebrating Darwin Day with an evening discussion One of the questions which I faced concerned the death of Jesus. The student said, Do you believe that Jesus died for your sins? I thought Jesus' death was part of God's plan. I thought he had to die. With grace, I replied, no, 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 no. That's ghastly theology. Don't go there. You don't want to go there.
0: So the atonement is ghastly theology. Now, I, I want you to understand that the things that we hold so dear and the things that are so fundamental and intrinsic to the gospel of Jesus Christ are being violated by men of the cloth. And that is something that we're going to have to work against um, and 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 pray, really. Uh, because these attacks are not coming from outside, but as Paul said, vicious wolves will devour you from within. And that's exactly what we see happening. So that's, that's how, and obviously I want you to know that these are just some of the distortions that are happening. There may be many, many more. But these are some that I could find references for in the, this, this happened in January this year. So this is not something in the past. This is, this is happening very, very recently. All right. So the gospel now, another element is that it is a free offer received by faith in what Christ has done for us. So sola fide gratia Christus. So by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. Some uh, verses that, that we can read over here. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what, I must, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. That's Acts 16.30. John 3.16, all of us know that, for God so loved the world. Why? That he gave his only begotten Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but would have everlasting life. So, the good news is that we can, this is something that's offered to us free. We do not have to do anything to, to work for it. We just need to believe. Now, what are some distortions that are happening here? First of all, we know that there's a distortion by Roman Catholicism. And I just read to you, this is from the, of the Catholic Church, Article 4, the Sacrament of Penance and Reconciliation. You can look this up on the Catholic, on the Vatican website. Christ instituted the Sacrament of Penance for all sinful members of His Church. Above all, for those who, since baptism, have fallen into grave sin, and thus have lost their baptismal grace and wounded ecclesial communion. It is to them that the sacrament of penance offers a new possibility to convert and to recover the grace of justification. The fathers of the Church present this sacrament as the second plank, it is not by grace alone. You need a second plank of salvation after the shipwreck, which is the loss of grace. So this is what the Reformation was fought over. The second plank. And so this is a, a, a problem that, that... So the problem with Roman Catholicism is not really Mary... I mean, Marian worship is a problem, uh, confession is a problem, etc. But this is the, the core disagreement that Protestants have with Roman Catholicism is that it is by, by salvation, it is by grace alone, whereas they have instituted a second plank for those who may lose their baptismal grace. John Piper has uh, written um, a book called The Future of Justification and he wrote it as a, a response to the Bishop of Durham called uh, his name is N.T. Wright and he's Responsible for developing a new perspective on Paul. And I won't go into the details, it is quite complex, but John Piper says, By treating works of the law, that Paul talks about in Galatians, By treating works of the law as not all works, but only the ceremonial works of circumcision, the food laws and the Sabbath keeping, Thus, when Paul says that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law, he is only excluding those ceremonial Jewish boundary markers. he's not excluding other works. And so, anti writes, allows, when, basically when he says that it doesn't cover all works, it opens the door to allowing other moral works of love to slip in the door with faith as the basis of our justification. And so, yes, we are saved, but we need to do good works as well in order to remain saved. So that's a problem. And these again, like I'm saying, these are Christian, evangelical, theologians, scholars, bishops, very influential, have great followings. And what you'll notice, and and you'll see this as we progress through, is these things start off in academia, in in universities, they trickle down to perhaps people who have more influence as authors and speakers, and soon it finds itself in the mainstream, in books, in songs, in websites, in active movements that people are requested and and encouraged to be a part of. So, um, And it happens really quickly. Now, especially with, with the internet. Number five. And we spend a bit of time on this. The gospel is an instrument of salvation based on faith in what Christ has achieved. Let me read a few uh, verses for you over here. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. First Peter 1 Peter Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one would boast. You know all these verses. And so we want to look at the components of this instrument. This instrument of salvation has regeneration. We need to be made alive. We are dead in our sins and so therefore regeneration is a very important... If you don't have any of these components, you really don't have the gospel. You need regeneration. We are regenerated to get eternal life. We need to exercise faith. This enables us God, enables God to forgive us. We are justified. We are reconciled. He adopts us. And then as we grow in sanctification, it ends when we are glorified. Each of these... Um, elements are vital. As you just saw, anti-right has a problem with justification. Soon someone will have might have a problem with the atonement. I don't know. We've seen already some, some attacks happening. But let's look at a few distortions over here. And primarily they'll have to do with regeneration and faith. So Pelagius was a British monk and he went head to head with Augustine um, back a long time ago. And but Pelagianism basically says that our our will is free to will our faith and it is not so enslaved that we need any divine assistance to do so. I don't need God to help me believe. I can believe. In and of myself. I can pull myself up with my own bootstraps. And so. Clearly this is a problem. Because the Bible tells us. That we are dead in our sins. And being dead in our sins. We do not have the capacity. Or the inclination to believe. So Pelagianism is a problem. Arminianism would teach. That God helps people overcome. He does help people overcome. The deadness of their soul. He does allow them to overcome the deadness, but then he leaves the decision to come to him, to them. And so, Arminianism teaches that God helps all people overcome their deadness of soul and leaves to the decisive will of man whether to follow that grace and trust Christ as a conse- and as a consequence be born again. In other words, regeneration does not cause faith. Rather, faith is a choice to agree with God's grace and believe, and thus be born again. So here, faith would be a choice, whereas the gospel tells us that faith is a gift. Uh, Jesus himself says, all that the Father gives me, it's not that he lets them take their own choice to come to me, but he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and I will lose none of them. And no one can come to me unless the Father gives him to me. So, Arminianism is a distortion uh, that that distorts what Christ has um, achieved. So lastly, the promise the gospel is an infinitely happy future destiny, no rocket science here. I'm sure no one would want to distort this. The promise is of attaining God himself, 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? That he might bring us to God. The end of salvation is God himself. If if God had to give us the, the very best that he could give us, he would have to give us himself. Because there is nothing better than God himself. And so the purpose of salvation is to bring us to God. Why is this good news? God saves us to give us himself. And the purpose of salvation is to be united with God. No rocket science there. So let's do a brief... Um, oh, sorry. A God, a, the distortion over here would be by distorting, by elevating anything above Christ. Anything in our lives which gives us ultimate meaning for which we are consumed in an ultimate sense. Anything uh, anything like family, money, career, ambition, power, anything could be a distortion of the gospel because that starts to compete With our affection and our attention, instead of God. So, whereas God makes us and saves us to to be with Him, and suddenly something else starts to compete with that for our attention, that would immediately cause a a distortion in the gospel. So, we've looked at those elements. Uh, We've looked at six elements. It's 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 an objective. um, event. It is planned from eternity past. It is a real and historical event. It is an objective accomplishment. It is an offer. It is a free offer. It is an instrument of salvation. Uh, and lastly, it is an infinitely happy future. So, I want to leave you with this. Is How do we identify the, the true gospel? Ask yourself three questions. How am I saved? What am I saved from? And what am I saved for? The moment you are confronted with anything that claims to be the gospel, ask yourself these questions. How am I saved? What am I saved from? And what am I saved for? Three very simple questions. We see the answers to this. It may be a bit small, so I'll read it out for you. The Bible says that we are saved by grace through faith in the wrath absorbing. I love that word, wrath absorbing. We are saved. Uh, by grace through faith in the wrath absorbing death of Jesus Christ on the cross and justified in his resurrection as a substitute for us, the rebel lawbreakers. That's what, that's how we are saved. We are saved by faith through grace. Sorry, by grace through faith. What are we saved for? We are saved What are we saved from? We are saved from a holy God. We are actually saved from His wrath. We are saved from sin, yes, but actually we are saved from God for God. We are saved from a holy God, from His righteous wrath poured out eternally on every sinner who has disgraced His glory. What are we saved for? We are saved to have peace with God, to be holy, to be gathered among God's people who live and love, and who magnify God by treasuring Christ and enjoying Him above everything in this world and the next. So that's your barometer now for judging anything that comes across your path claiming to be the true gospel. How am I saved? What am I saved from? What am I saved for? And let's see how four different very um, popular gospels have come into Um, our society and this is a distortion by redefinition the moment you start fiddling with those core elements and those key elements that we saw, the moment you start saying, no I don't need this or I don't need that and I can start tweaking stuff to suit my convenience you will start redefining what the gospel is so the first one we look at is the therapeutic gospel, second the prosperity gospel the third, the attention gospel, and lastly, the social gospel. There may be heaps more other fake gospels out there. These are just four examples of something that's pretty common that would pop up every now and then, even amongst uh, uh, your friends and family. All right, so distortion by redefinition, the therapeutic gospel. What? How are we saved, according to this gospel? We are saved by becoming self-authenticated. And affirmed. What are we saved from? We are saved from self destructive negativity. What are we saved for? We are saved for self confidence. If you happen to be a psychologist or things like that, uh, this self esteem issue or those sorts of things would be very positive and affirming, trying to make people feel good about themselves. So again, here's Bishop Spong telling us what we should be thinking.
1: There is no atonement in the fourth gospel. There is no wallowing in the sinfulness of humanity. There is no portrayal of Jesus as the divine rescuer who comes to save the sinner. The redeemer who comes to give value to the worthless. The rescuer who comes to lift up those who have fallen. Those ideas are not in the fourth gospel. The fourth gospel would never lead anyone to say... Something that we hear in worship almost every Sunday in almost every Christian church. Namely, that Jesus died for my sins. That is not a fourth gospel idea. The fourth gospel portrays one who is so full and so free and so whole that in the giving of his life away, he achieves the fullness of what
0: humanity is all about. So it's all about reaching your full potential. So anything that stops you from reaching that potential is actually a sin. How else is the gospel redefined in the prosperity gospel? What are we saved? Um, How are we saved? We are saved by faith that produces health and wealth. So if your faith is not producing health and wealth, then... uh, You're not cutting it. What are we saved from? We are saved from poverty and financial heartache. And what are we saved for? We are saved to enjoy financial abundance. And I know that all of you were looking forward to the man Joel Osteen himself. So here's what he has to say. I want to talk to you today about asking big.
3: When God laid out the plan for your life, He didn't just put what you need to get by, to survive, to endure. He put more than enough. He's a God of abundance. And we see this all through the scripture. When Jesus multiplied the little boy's lunch, five loaves of bread and two fish, after thousands of people ate, there were 12 baskets full left over. And what's interesting is they had counted the people beforehand. Jesus knew how many were in the crowd that day. If he wanted to be exact, he could have made it where there would be no leftovers. On purpose, he made more than enough. That's the God we serve. David said, my cup runs over. He had an abundance more than he needed. Yes, we should thank God that our needs are supplied. We should be grateful that we have enough, but don't settle there. That's not your destiny. He is a more than enough God. He wants you to have an abundance so you can be a blessing to those around you. And this is where the Israelites missed it. They had been in slavery for so many years that they became conditioned to not having enough, to barely getting by. When Pharaoh got upset with Moses, he told his foreman to have the Israelites make the same amount of bricks without the hay and straw being provided for them. I'm sure the Israelites prayed, God, please. Help us to make our quotas. God, please help us to find these supplies that we need. They prayed from a slave mentality, from a limited mindset. Instead of asking to be free from their oppressors, they were asking to become better slaves. Instead of praying for what God promised them, the land flowing with milk and honey, they prayed that God would help them function better in their dysfunction. Are you asking today to become a better slave? Are you asking for the abundant, overflowing, more than enough life that God has for you?
0: Very powerful. Very, very, um, very enduring. But it's false. Another distortion. The attention gospel. I, I was not uh, very familiar with this, but Uh, You'll like this, I think. We are saved by remembering God more mindfully. We are saved from ignoring that God exists. And we are saved to live more conscious of God. Sounds very God-centered. Sounds very holy. And sounds very um, very good. Um, So as you watch this next video, it's going to take a while. But I promise you it will make its point.
4: The Jesus prayer is the meditative prayer of the Eastern Orthodox Church. It is prayer, its calling upon Christ, to invite him into our heart. The Jesus prayer is linked with breathing, whilst our awareness is centered on the heart. Sit comfortably. Feel your body's contact with the floor and the chair back. Let your feet rest on the floor, if possible. Imagine they have roots going deep into the ground. Follow your breathing in through your nose all the way to your lungs, and feel how your stomach broadens during the inhalation and how it sinks during exhalation. For in God we live and breathe and have our being. You breathe in the breath of God. Christ's presence and God's Spirit fills you and oxidizes your inner being, and you exhale the waste. When you rest in your breathing in and out, you focus your awareness in your heart region. Pray the Jesus prayer thus, inhaling, you think or pray, Jesus Christ, Son of God. Exhaling, you think or pray, have mercy on me. Inhaling, you receive all that Jesus Christ wants to give you.
0: I won't inflict that in you anymore, but basically it's it's talking about inhale Jesus Christ, Son of God, and you exhale have mercy on me. Those are good words. Son of God, have mercy on me. Yeah, that's what you want to pray. Have mercy on me. But it's talking about invoking Christ and it's talking about all sorts. Now, you may think that oh, that, I, mean, I don't know how anyone's going to meditate with that beautiful imagery, so I'm just not going to be thinking about anything else or wanting to play in the snow, but <laughs> Um, but what's wrong with that? You know, isn't it, it making us more mindful and making us more conscious and aware and all? And it's, it's talking about Jesus, right? I mean, what's wrong with praying, Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me? But when you start to unpack these movements further, let me give you um, some writing from uh, another guy. His name is Paul Stead, I think. Tim Stead. Let me read to you, centuries of Western negative attitudes to the body in favor of the hoped-for purity of the mind have done untold damage to our understanding of things like sexuality, gender, and our approach to the environment. Mindfulness brings, begins to bring the body back into play in what, after all, is an incarnational religion, a religion of the flesh. Interesting. Interesting. Something has gone very wrong in the way we have used the concepts of sin and judgment to engender feelings of shame and guilt, which never lead to genuine change in anyone, but more often only suppression and hiddenness. The non-judging attitude of mindfulness offers us a way back from this too. So you've got to be non-judging. So the moment you come out and be judgmental, sorry, that's just not on. That's not the gospel. So you see how subtle and devious these Gospels are in framing what the true Gospel is so as to keep themselves above from further examination. And lastly, we look at the social Gospel. How are we saved? We are saved by focusing on the needs of others and being reconciled to one another. Why are we saved? What are we saved from? We are saved from societal structures that promote injustice, inequality, and racial or cultural or ethnic disharmony. And what are we saved for? We are saved to bring about cultural transformation and restoration, upliftment of the poor, global peace, social justice, and universal brotherhood. That's the social gospel. Beautiful things. Who doesn't want peace, right? Who doesn't want justice? Who doesn't want equality? But when that becomes the be-all and end-all, that's when we start to have a serious compromise. Here are a few examples of how this plays out in the world around us.
5: The Bible doesn't mind prosperity as long as it is shared.
0: Are you then calling for the redistribution of wealth in society?
5: Absolutely, without any hesitation. That's what the gospel is all about.
0: The gospel is all about redistribution of wealth in society. So, I don't know if 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 any of you were on Facebook uh, uh, saw this uh, maybe two months ago, where there was a bunch of women. Uh, it was a video, and a lot of uh, and it was shots of women, and um, they were trying to parody the idea of male um, uh, sermons or, or only males preaching and and they sort of parodied the idea that oh maybe we should let the men look after the Sunday school or maybe we should give them a ministry but something else and so basically trying to create make the point that you know there's if there's equality in the church then women should have an equal sort of status at the pulpit and so I did a bit of digging around and I found out that that video was made by Sojourners.com of which Jim Wallace is the founder and, and um, editor. And he is liberal as. And so I think we just need to be really careful about who, who we're following and, and what sort of messages. Because on the face of it, some messages might be quite good or might seem to be quite interesting or provocative. But when you dig deeper and you find out where they're coming from, it's completely anti-gospel so a couple more
1: top story tonight reaction joining us from washington Raymond Arroyo managing editor of EWTN news a Catholic news service and Jim Wallace the president of sojourners a national Christian group committed to faith and action for the social Christian group. justice
5: That's so where introduced. am I making
1: my mistakes Mr. Wallace
5: happy new year bill thank you great place to start the year with a story on Pope Francis uh, the Pope is calling us not to an ideology. He's calling us to the way of Jesus. These are his words that you uh, had him speak to us. He's the vicar of Christ. And as a Catholic and as one who knows the Bible, you know what the Gospel of Matthew 25 says, that how we treat the least of these, the hungry, the naked, the sick, the stranger, those who are locked up in jail, is how we treat Christ himself. This is the core of the gospel. So today, just today, it was released the Pope had a meeting with all the heads of all the orders and he called priests around the world to get out of their comfort zones and serve the poor. He says, this is very important to me. We've got to be with those on the margins or else we'll become uh, abstract ideologists and fundamentalists, which is he said a mistake. How do we get with the poor? That's what the Pope is calling us all to, not ideology, but the core of the gospel of Christ.
0: This is on national television in the U.S. The core of the gospel of Christ is all about lifting up the poor and lifting up the needy and the downtrodden, which are all good things. They are great things. Lifting up the poor, lifting up the downtrodden, all excellent things and we should be seeking to do this. But to label it as the gospel, as the power of God unto salvation that is completely a distortion of what the truth is. And I have just one more video. Um, and, and so, I mean, when you look at this guy, he's talking about Jesus, and he's talking about, you know, the great things, but he's also saying that the Pope is actually the Vicar of Christ. And he's talking about the the, the Roman Catholic tradition as if it is a legitimate um, path of salvation. And so someone like this who doesn't either doesn't understand or doesn't care... Um, that's,
3: that's uh, quite serious.
6: All right, I, I got one minute, and I'll answer four questions with, like, one word. The question over here was, uh, what is the government's role? One role, freedom of religion, promote freedom of religion. The person over here who asked about uh, the millennial goals, I, I met last month with uh, Secretary General Ban Ki-moon uh, to talk about faith-based organizations working with the UN on this. And later you should talk to Tony Blair, who's just formed a foundation. He's much too humble to talk about it on this very issue. To my brother, Islamic brother here from Italy, I would say, I'm not really interested in interfaith dialogue. I'm interested in interfaith projects. we got enough talk. (laughs) So uh, two weeks ago, or uh, a a few weeks ago, at Georgetown University, we brought in three imams, we brought in three Catholic priests, we brought in three evangelical pastors, and we brought in three rabbis, and we said, what can we do about AIDS? And we started on some common ground on those issues. What can we do that we all all care about? And, uh, Tony, on your question on why is faith growing, there are eight answers to that, and I don't have time, but it's depersonalization is one of them, and fragmentation, and the, the, the fact that materialism and
0: hedonism is ultimately an well, empty lifestyle. People are looking for meaning. So, looking for Rick problems. Warren, again, massive, massive voice, in evangelicalism around the world. Uh, purpose-driven life sold like crazy, millions of copies, hundreds of languages. Um, and he is seen as a legitimate voice at the World Economic Forum uh, for Christianity. And he would, or seems to be advocating that these sorts of projects for AIDS and uplift, upliftment working with interfaith projects with imams and rabbis and Catholic priests and evangelicals all together that these are good things that that churches should get behind. So again, is that the gospel? No. Is that something that we could support as individuals? Perhaps. But to say that this saves people uh, is deadly. All right. So that's just bringing it to a close. What can you do to be more gospel driven? View every aspect of your life through the lens of the gospel, whether it's the songs you sing or the books you read or the blog posts you follow, whatever. Look at everything through the eyes of the gospel. And those components that we talked about, is it historical? Is it an objective uh, accomplishment? Is it a free gift? Is it an instrument of salvation? Does it meet all these things? This, like I said, you know, uh, these things start off in, in academia but then filter down into songs, into Plays and books, some of them very attractive, some of them best sellers on the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times. And we think, oh, this must be got, it must have something right in it because it's selling so much. But then when we, when we, we need to sort of really unpack what's being fed to us through the media, through the lens of the gospel to see whether it actually squares with God's word or not. Understand the meaning of the gospel by asking, what does this particular gospel component look like in my life? Example, if Jesus' righteousness is imputed to me, what does that mean for when I feel guilty and ashamed of my sin? If God sees me as righteous, and as God sees me and declares me as having the righteousness of Christ, how should that make me feel when I feel guilty and ashamed of my sin? Another example, if If people cannot come to faith unless God regenerates them, how should that impact my prayer life? So looking at understanding these gospel components and just trying to find ways in which we can understand them better because how does this look in my life? What does justification actually mean for me as a person? What does regeneration mean? What does eternal life mean? How does that impact my life today? How does that uh, make me live differently and live in accordance with the gospel? Would Perhaps help us be more gospel driven Keep rehearsing the gospel in your mind So you can share it whenever required How? What are the different ways In which you can present the gospel All these different components How can you mix and match them And present them Not distort them Not subtract them But present them differently Present them in a different order How can you um, talk about the historicity of, of Jesus How can you talk about the fact that He takes our sins uh, On himself, he stands in our place to bear the judgment of God. How can you just keep rehearsing them in your mind over and over so that whenever someone, when you have the opportunity, it sort of flows out much more easily. And lastly, alert others to any distortions that you come across. I heard the song, man, oh, it is off the charts. Watch out. I mean, it just helps if we can have each other's back when we say, don't listen to this or look out for this guy or, oh, this seems a bit, off so you know keep, keep your antenna up those are just some ways where we can start to perhaps be uh, a little more gospel centric in our lives and uh, that brings us to the end I don't know if anyone has any questions oh, thank you, thank you. Sorry to put you through all that um, junk. (laughs) I had to make the point. All right. Well, um, I might ask Jeff if he can come
6: up and close.